นโมทัสสะกุวะตุอรหัตุสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวะตุอรหัตุสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวะตุอรหัตุสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะเราเห็นว่าการเปลี่ยนแปลงของสิ่งที่เราเคยเป็นเป็นสิ่งที่เราเคยเป็นเป็นสิ่งที่เราเคยเป็นเป็นสิ่งที่เราเคยเป็นเ
the Buddha and Ajahn Chah are pointing to and the cessation of becoming, this experience, uh, knowing directly, directly this actuality, this is a different dimension. And so it is important that when we're considering these, these things that we don't project too much onto the approximations. And I've mentioned before that example of, I can remember from when I was at school and the teacher would create on the desk what, what he called a, a sugar molecule. There's six red blobs and 12 blue blobs and six yellow blobs or whatever they were and then little sticks joining them all together and you've got this construction on the desk there and the, the teacher said, this is a sugar molecule. Well, C6H12O6 is what scientists, that's how they analyse and, and talk about uh, this substance, which in actuality, when you taste it, is very sweet. But, of course, if you lick those coloured blobs and sticks, you just be plastic. Really not attractive. Mm-hmm. Completely unattractive. And, Likewise, the concepts that we have and the relationship we have with concepts about awakening, about reality, about letting go, they're not anywhere near what is being referred to. It's really essential that we remember that these are approximations. and They're helpful, my chemistry teacher talking to me about C6H12O6 was helpful, helped me understand some information about what's being referred to there. And yeah, Certainly the Buddha and the great teachers are talking about uh, reality is very helpful. It gives direction to our attention. You know, we know where to look. We know how to discipline attention if we give the right kind of discipline the right kind of direction then there's a better chance that we're going to reach the right kind of understanding and this right kind of understanding is what is being referred to as we all know you know first fact of the eightfold path right understanding samadhi as the Buddha wanted us to see, to realise, to arrive at and come to know directly. And so this is again what Ajahn Chara is pointing out, what is this right understanding and then talking about the practices and emptying the mind of self and other. And again we need to be very, very careful when we're engaging in this contemplation of emptying the mind of self and other. And sometimes people get very confused. How how come the Buddha taught about anatta or not-self and and he's also now talking about emptying the mind of self? And and then you read the discourses of the Buddhas, like some of you are probably familiar with the the discourse of Siddhartha Sutta or sometimes referred to as the acrobat, where the Buddha is talking about cultivating mutual benefit and 
and quite specifically how to act in a way that brings benefit to yourself and to the other. And so in this case, those of you that are familiar with this sutta, the acrobat, uh, a couple of entertainers, performers have this gig that they did that traveled from one village to another and involved uh, one performer holding a bamboo rod and the other one climbing up and doing some tricks and and they would uh, earn a living in this way, performing their tricks. And, and it got to a point where one day, presumably the the older one, the master, the one who stood on the ground and and, and the his female assistant climbed on his shoulder with this bamboo rod. The older one said, look, I think if we want to be successful in keeping, keeping this show on the road, I think you really need to be paying closer attention to me, to what I'm doing, and I'll make an effort to pay closer attention to you. And that way we'll benefit each other. We'll be able to keep this show on the road. We'll keep getting a livelihood. And so his uh, assistant listened and then replied and said, well, you know, that's all well and good. I, I can hear what you're saying, but my perspective is that actually what's going to really bring benefit is if I pay closer attention to what I'm doing and you pay closer attention, better attention to what you're supposed to be doing. And that way, we're going to bring mutual benefit. So this story, this illustration, was something the Buddha was giving to a bunch of monks and with the encouragement for cultivating mindfulness. By paying closer attention to ourselves, we actually benefit each other. And in this case, uh, the Buddha pointed out that the, the assistant was the one who had the right perspective, which, by the way, is a, if we're contemplating the society we live in and, and all the chaos and confusion that we're witnessing and, and local community and national and global, and you know, how do we bring about benefit? Well, the Buddha's advice... And, to bring about benefit is to pay closer attention to ourselves with the underlying aspiration to generate benefit for all, but spending all our time and giving emphasis to to others and looking at what others are doing actually fails. It's really within ourselves that we need to be cultivating clear understanding. And when we really understand ourselves and really being truly responsible for ourselves, that we benefit and the others benefit as well. But getting back to this teaching of emptying the mind of self and other, how come the, the Buddha and the great teachers were talking about that? Isn't that in conflict? Well, really, what we're talking about here is that the ultimate benefit is when there's the accurate understanding of this mental formation of self and others. And, and this is really something worth paying attention to. It's not something that generally you know, people have a lot of clarity about. And, 
notice, for instance, you notice the way that the word ego is used these days. It's very often, perhaps in English anyway, I don't know about other languages. Uh, some other languages are more disciplined than in English. and uh, People can get very creative in English and use words in all sorts of different ways according to how they feel it suits them. And, and so generally for a lot of people these days, ego has come to be used in the pejorative where really ego, if you look at the origin of it and how it's used in other languages, it comes from the Latin root, it just means I. It's self, it's me. And, and, and yet the way it's generally being spoken, at least in English um, these days, is, uh, is often in a very casual sense, as if somehow ego is always wrong, that ego is always a problem. And that, I would suggest, that's not helpful to be thinking that I or ego is always a problem. That's not the source of the problem. The Buddha used the expression atta or self. Atta samapaniti cha, oneself rightly directed. Atta hiata no nato koinato parosia. Oneself is one's own refuge. How could another be your refuge? He also talked about anatta, not self. But this is not conflicting at all if we have the correct understanding. So perhaps we could consider that this evening a little bit. How do we understand this sense of self and other? And what is Ajahn Chah referring to there where he's talking about emptying out the mind from self and other. He's certainly not talking about getting rid of having a sense of self or a sense of personality. Developing an individual sense of self is something that takes a lot of time for human beings. uh, you don't have to study very much Uh, the research that's been done by Mm. child development psychologists to find out about what's involved or something about what's involved with how this perception of self evolves and, and what can happen along the way if it doesn't evolve in a good enough, balanced manner. Like a child, for instance, in the first 18 months or so, doesn't have a sense of self. And the child looks in the mirror and can't recognise that that image there is a reflection of themselves. But from about that age onwards... Because of the way the brain works and the effect of sensory input, gradually the perception arises of me. And around the age of three, there's something fairly stable emerging. And then by around the age of seven or eight, it's pretty well established. That's the time when you can 
start having conversations with this little being. But, but early on you can't. There isn't a somebody there. But gradually the sense of somebody evolves and from about the age of seven or eight onwards it solidifies and they make their way around in life and till around about the age of 24 and at least by that age uh, hopefully if they've had a decent education and spiritual education they're going to start asking questions about what is this sense of self what is this apparent reality that can sometimes be wonderfully happy and other times be really really sad even depressed and perhaps even suicidal can fall in love maybe can have murderous impulses who is this who am i and these questions are really important questions and if we've had a as I said, a good enough sort of spiritual education, well, then we'll be supported in asking these questions and we embark on the spiritual journey. Now, if we haven't had a good enough spiritual education and encouragement, sadly, we sink into an increasingly rigid misperception of the sense of self. And it becomes more and more confident about its importance. And this is what these days we'd refer to as self-centered or egotistical. But that's not the problem with the ego. Being egotistical is definitely a problem. We all know that people who are egotistical or self-centered are very unpleasant to be around. But people who don't have egos, uh, they'd be on medication and need somebody to look after them. A sense of self is just how the mind operates. It's a mechanism that evolves from the time we're born. We use it for navigating our way through the world. But it's important that we understand the reality of the sense of self. So emptying the mind of self and other is not getting rid of the sense of self or the perception of self and other. That would be a terrible mistake. But it's learning to let go of it, learning to relate to it wisely, learning to see that the sense of self is like a reflection. Just the same as you know, when you, you look in a mirror example I've given many times before of looking in a mirror and seeing a reflection, you wouldn't feel embarrassed about seeing a reflection. So, well, that's what mirrors do. Likewise, that's what our mind does. It can come up with a reflection, an approximation of who and what we really are, an impression of who and what we really are. And that helps us navigate. It means we can differentiate ourselves. You know, I don't confuse myself with Tanratapalo. I know Tanratapalo there. He's a one Pansa monk, he's from the Philippines and he's here from Wat Chart and he's staying with us for two years and eventually he'll go back to Wat Chart again and I'll stay here. And I don't confuse myself with Tanratapalo. If I didn't have an ego sufficiently well established, if I didn't have a good enough sense of self, I could get very confused. It's important that we have a sense of self and a sense of personal responsibility and also a sense of 
karma and the consequences of my actions and the consequences of his actions or the consequences of another's actions. These perceptions of self and other have a functional value, really important, but what's essential is that we understand clearly, understand accurately, and, and the tragic consequences of not understanding. Being stuck on the level of egoic existence and not maturing to an accurate understanding of the relative nature of ego is really immature. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, development stops too early. The ego becomes too important and wants to be centre stage all the time. So really looking closely when we come across these words self and other or ego and use these words being careful that we have an accurate understanding about what we're referring to. Having a sense of self is not a problem but not understanding this impression, this mental mechanism, this dynamic process which is being referred to as an ego or as a sense of self is something we need to work on. Now, traditionally in society, the conventional means of keeping the ego, protecting the ego from becoming too important, from becoming the individual becoming self-obsessed, that was achieved by conventional religion. That That used to be, well, still is, generally speaking, the the function of religion, to relativise egoity so people don't become egotistical or self-centred. Up until relatively recently in human development, uh, at least in the West, in the Christian society, at least once a week most people were repeating the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Honouring the Almighty, worshipping, believing in the omnipotence, uh, the omnipresent, uh, the ultimate reality. That belief, that conviction in the authority of that power uh, relativised the ego structure. Uh, People were protected from becoming too self-important and so they weren't too confused. They weren't too riddled with anxiety. But in the last century, at least in the West, and pretty much since the First World War and industrialization and the increase in affluence and the tragedy of those wars and and the increase in technology and uh, indulgence and uh, these developments in human society, the, the power of protection that was afforded by conventional religion has been diluted 
And so now people's egos are not protected anymore. And it's not anybody's fault. I mean, it's not like people have all gotten bad or something. It's, it's just that there isn't, a, there isn't an understanding in most cases and there isn't a conventional belief system which protects people. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that we should revert to some sort of earlier belief system but it does, I think, highlight uh, or give us perhaps an understanding of how come with all this increased education, increased affluence, increased prosperity, decrease in war, decrease in disease, decrease in famine, how come we're more confused, we're more anxious, we're more unhappy? How did that happen? Well, if we contemplate along these lines... Uh, the relationship to the ego structure has changed dramatically in the last century. As we become more materialistic and the effect of having a conventional belief system has, has been, become diluted, people have become more obsessed with themselves. So it's no, no longer thy will be done or thy kingdom come, it's all about me. majority of materialists are perpetually doing selfies. That's what much of social media is about, worshipping me, worshipping self, polishing me. I heard a story recently of somebody who went for a holiday to a resort, I think it was in Egypt, and and they spent a lot of money going on this holiday. And, and when they got there, it was absolutely awful. And so they didn't stay very long. They came back. But once they got back, they realized they hadn't taken any photos to put on their Facebook page. And so they went back again just to take some photos to put on the Facebook page. So why would you spend money to go somewhere awful? Why would you do that? Uh, well, it's um, polishing the ego structure, promoting the personality. And, and you know, obviously people chuckle because we, we look at that and I think, well, actually, that's not very clever. It's not evil, it's not bad, but it's certainly not clever. Honouring the wrong thing, we're worshipping the wrong thing. But that's not ego's problem. That's not the problem with the self. It's the relationship or the understanding that we have uh, of the ego structure, of the self structure, of these conventional perceptions. They're not supposed to be acting centre stage. There are times when we're supposed to let the ego rest, let it go quiet. And in previous times, people would sing hymns, chant mantras, perform rituals, which help them, again, as I said, relativize, or maybe in some cases transcend the state of egoity. And those rituals and use of symbols used to serve a certain function. And, but again, over the last century, they, they've become rejected. They don't serve that purpose in the way that they used to. 
So what are we going to do about it? Well, in this case, we have this teaching that Ajahn Chah gives us, is the, the cultivation of generosity, integrity, kindness. These practices empty the heart and mind of self and other. In other words, these practices help us extract ourselves from the momentum of seeking security in that which is inherently insecure. Trying to find identity by clinging to ego structure, self-structure, is a false pursuit. It's, again, it's not the self-structure's problem. Yeah? Like blaming self, blaming ego, it's like you know, blaming electricity. Like if you're making toast and the toast gets stuck in the toaster and so you, you get a fork and stick it into the toaster to get the toast out and you get electrocuted. Well, whose fault is that? It's not electricity's fault, is it? It's our fault for not understanding and not relating uh, intelligently to electricity. Well, likewise, the self-structure, the ego, the sense of personality, is not something that we should be focusing on. We need to be cultivating practices which help us let go of, and this is what is being referred to by emptying the mind of self and other, learning to let go of ourselves letting go of ourselves we also let go of others now if we merely think about these things we say well if I let go of myself I'll disappear <laughs> no it's like you look in a mirror and you, you know, close your eyes and it's not like you disappeared you open your eyes the reflection is still there uh, unless you're seriously psychologically undeveloped and then the ego structure is still going to be there we don't have to worry about that. But we do need to give it a break. We do need to be able to let go. We do need to find ways of relativizing the self, relativizing ego, so we don't take ourselves so seriously. And so, you know, I was speaking this morning to the gathering at the meal about how, how making offerings somehow generates a good feeling and why does it feel good to make offerings you could say oh well it means the other person is going to like me well that is one level that's possible but you could completely forget about that and and traditionally speaking when when the lay people come to the monastery they're not worrying about whether the monks like them or not what they're doing is cultivating dana barami they're cultivating the capacity for making offerings or giving, practicing generosity. And in practicing generosity, we loosen the habit of clinging to me and mine, even just a little bit, just for a moment. And it feels good. It's a relief. And likewise, cultivating integrity, cultivating kindness. You cultivate integrity... being aware of how our behavior affects others, cultivating all the precepts, you know, we generate an atmosphere of fearlessness, harmlessness, generating benefit for others, and likewise you know, generating kindness towards others, kindness towards ourselves. We're letting go of that rigid self-obsession. We can't generate kindness and be self-obsessed at the same time. So cultivating such practices support us in this learning to extract ourselves from the momentum of seeking security in that which is inherently insecure.
Because the self-structure is insecure, it doesn't mean to say it's wrong. It just means it's not, that's not its function. To think that clinging to the self-structure or the ego is going to be a satisfactory source of security is like a cook sticking their finger in the food to see if it's too salty or too spicy. The finger can't tell whether it's too salty. You put your finger into it. Is this too salty? (laughs) The finger doesn't know. The finger, it can tell texture, it can tell temperature, but it can't tell flavour. That sense doesn't work like that. The ego sense, the ego structure, doesn't work like that. The ego structure is not meant to give us a sense of security. And as disciples of the Buddha, we orient our attention towards that which is inherently secure, which is awareness itself. Not self-centred awareness, but awareness itself. Awareness that is purified or emptied of self-obsession. Awareness that is freed from the distortions of greed, hatred and delusion. Awareness that is informed with right understanding. And so... So the pursuit of security, the pursuit of reliable security, it's not like, well, religious belief systems that we don't find attractive, we don't feel drawn to committing ourselves to those and and, focusing on the level of egoity and uh, that's proven to be inadequate. So it's not like, well, we haven't got any alternative. We do have an alternative. And that's what our refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha is. It's, it's the alternative. Cultivating the pursuit of security or the refuge, finding the refuge in awareness itself, in the just knowing mind. Again, we're talking in the beginning about approximations, hearing this contemplation and believing it of course in itself is not enough but we can do something about it we can cultivate those practices which help purify awareness free awareness from self-obsession cultivating generosity cultivating integrity cultivating kindness cultivating wise reflection start asking questions when we have some stability of heart and mind and there's an awareness of this level of tranquility, ease, presence. And then the question arises, who is aware? Who knows? Who's asking these questions? If we ask these questions because we're rightly prepared and ready to ask these questions, maybe we'll find that our attention at that point goes deeper and we discover that there's a more subtle level of I, not just the coarse level of I that's perpetually taking selfies to put in our social media but uh, Pali referred to as upakilesa or refined 
obstructions to consciousness. There's still these levels of clinging to a perception of me, self, and other. But by asking that question in the right way at the right time, there's an opportunity for recognizing the habit of clinging at a deeper level, more subtle level, and a further level of letting go. And for every experience of conscious letting go, there's a corresponding increase in confidence. So there's contemplation of the nature of ego or the nature of self, the nature of self and other. We're not talking about trying to get rid of these conventional mental processes, but coming to understand them accurately, purifying our understanding of them. So we're not just clinging to them, but then we're not trying to get rid of them. We're understanding them, as with electricity, as with life. And hopefully what we find is an ever-increasingly unobstructed relationship with these activities and a corresponding freedom from confusion. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.